Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. So no light bulbs are going on, but but there are other voices, and we need other voices to speak in seasoned, uh, tested voices that have the ability to bring the word of God. Because how many of you know if you hear the same voice all the time, uh, it can become Charlie Brown school t- teacher. Amen. The truth is, is that probably I, I haven't asked them. I don't tell them what to speak, and I haven't asked them. Probably what's going to happen is some of our speakers are going to say the same thing I've been saying for months, and y'all are going to shout them down and dance down the aisle and woo and buck and like, that's the best thing I've ever heard. I wish our preacher would preach like that, and I've already preached it, but y'all didn't, didn't listen to me because I'm Charlie Brown school teacher, so, so that's why we do this. It's important. I do say this, and I, and I sincerely mean it every year. You will get the best preaching you get all year in the next four weeks. Who said, uh, oh, actually, I'll deal with her later. I know where she lives, so um, <laughs> you're grounded. All right. All right. So uh, uh, deal with her. So uh, I know he's been trying. So anyway, uh, we are delighted this morning to have a special guest with us from Quitman, Mississippi. I almost said Missouri, but I w- that would have been bad. That would have been real bad. He'd have walked out and never said a word. Mississippi. He is from, he pastors this uh, church called Check this out. How appropriate is this? Bethany Church. Okay, so um, I don't know why we didn't think of that but because uh, uh, we weren't in Bethany at the time. But he's at Bethany Church. He and his wife Jennifer are doing a, uh, an incredible job. But I will tell you that his real claim to fame is the fact that he is our children's pastor's uncle. So that's really his claim to fl- fame uh, that he's connected to her. But we are so delighted this morning uh, to have Pastor Glenn Lafferty with us, and so I'm going to turn this over to him, but I want you to do me a favor, will you? Um, I want you to treat him right, all right? So get with him. Uh, I think it might be all right if you talk back to him. Now, don't drown him out, but talk back to him a little bit. Uh, hold, hold your coffee breaks until he's done. All that stuff y'all do with me, don't do with him. Uh, now, we got some folks that are going to have to go to the bathroom because I know where I know what life is like, but I'm asking you. For the next little while, would you just allow the Holy Spirit to to pull strings? This is what's happening here. God has pulled strings on people's schedules to make this work. And so if that's the way this works, and I believe it is, then it's not a coincidence he's here, and it must mean God has something to say through through him, and we need to be attentive, attentive to that. So would you do me a huge favor this morning, and would you give a passion welcome to Pastor Glenn Lafferty as he brings the word? Amen. And I, I squeezed the water bottle just as I was getting up, and I, I that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> he did take the thunder out of my, uh, out of my mouth. Uh, yeah, my one claim to fame, and I was going to use those exact words around here, is that uh, I am Madeline's uncle. But may the truth be established. I am not only her uncle, but I am her favorite uncle. Okay. 
regardless of what she may say to the contrary to protect herself because this is live streaming and there are other guys in the running, I am the favorite uncle. I need to say that. All right. It's good to be with you. It's, it's funny how our paths intertwine, not only because Madeline is here, but uh, uh, I preached my first sermon in, I know I don't look this old, but in uh, uh, December of 1979. And uh, over the course of years, uh, intersected with... Uh, Pastor Steve's father, and uh, Pastor Bob, Brother Bob has preached into my life many, many times, and so there is, and let me give honor to Sister Ely, who's back here, and he is in Mississippi today, uh, right down the road from my church, another church, uh, about 30 miles away, and I'll see him hopefully tomorrow or Tuesday and spend some time with him, so it's funny how our lives intersect and how we end up where we are, and I don't think that this is an accident, I... uh, uh, I, I know that my, my son is preaching for me this morning, and uh, my church enjoys that. Uh, last time, uh, I, I wear a, a headgear when I preach because I like to flail. And uh, um, so if you see me drop the mic, it isn't because I'm leaving. I'll pick it up but uh, because I'm used to flailing, and I might fling it so you catch it and bring it back real quick. But uh, I remember I didn't have my headset on the other day, and uh, somebody was sitting up front, and they, they so they realized what I'm preaching. Who's preaching this morning? We have a few pastors in the church who's preaching this morning. I said, well, Josh is preaching. Oh, great. And I went, hey. <laughs> they said, oh, no, no, no. We Kind of like that one over there. Oh, no. Oh, no. We, we like you, Pastor. But, you know. <laughs> but, uh, Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Verse 1. Reading out of the New Living. Just 15, verse 1. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings? I think in the King James it says, What will you give me when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you'll have a son of your own who will be your heir. Verse 5, Then the Lord took Abram outside, and he said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Look back at verse 5. The Lord took Abram outside. And he said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. I want to talk to you for just a few moments. And I've entitled it, A Line in the Sand. A Line in the Sand. Let's pray. Father, we are in your presence. We thank you that we are kinfolk, that we are family, and I appreciate the privilege, the honor to share Pastor Steve's pulpit and to speak into his people's lives. And I pray that I do no harm, but that I share with them exactly what you have for us this morning. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to continue the work that you began even before we got here this morning. As you prepared our hearts when we awoke, you began to whisper into our spirits. 
We ask you to continue to take this word and make it live and let your word be heard. In the abundance of the things that I say, may your voice be recognized and may we listen. And then, Lord, help us to just latch hold, grab a hold of what you're saying to us. Of life-giving bread. Of life-giving bread. And let your anointing make the difference in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are three things that I believe that every believer should be focused on. Destiny and accuracy and legacy. We'll touch on them, but let me define them really quick for you. By destiny, I mean what I am becoming or what I am designed for, what I am here for. It speaks to design. Uh, The fact that I am designed by God for a purpose. I am designed by God for a singular purpose. And each and every one of us share the same destiny, the same purpose. We are designed by God to make a difference in someone's lives. That's our destiny, to make a difference in other people's lives. By, leg- by accuracy, I mean how am I living, and we're talking about visual messaging here. Uh, how accurate is my life when compared with the life of Jesus, who is the pattern or the model by which God's design is being perfected in my heart and in my life. God has destined me, he has designed me, Romans eight twenty nine, to be conformed to the image of his son. So how clearly am I messaging that conformity? How clearly is God's work in my life evidenced by what people see and hear coming out of me? Uh, what is my life communicating to the people that I interact with on a daily basis? And by legacy, I mean what I'm leaving behind. Now listen very carefully to this. Success is measured by the number of lives that God has poured himself into through me. My success is measured after everything's said and done. When I leave this world, uh, I tire of pastors who say that they were sent to a church to build a building. Uh, God sent me here to build a gym. God sent me here to do this. God, listen, it, regardless of whether you're a pastor or a layperson, your success is measured by the number of lives that God has poured himself into through you. And after you pass this life and you go to the next, that's going to be uh, the measure of your success. That is the legacy. That should be what you leave behind. And all of these address the issues of spiritual productivity or the fruitfulness of an individual's life. John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear fruit. Earlier in that chapter, he said, for all those fruit-bearing branches, my Father's going to work on them. He's going to prune them and purge them. And in the end, they're going to bear even more fruit. And so your life is to be fruitful. But the fruitfulness of your life is measured by the number of lives that God has been able to pour himself into through you in your existence in this earth. Now, in our text, Abraham is concerned with the productivity of his life. He is uh, he's sitting in his tent uh, and he's talking to God about barrenness. He's recalling the promise of destiny that was made in chapter 12 where God gave that great Abrahamic promise over which so much preaching has been done uh, throughout the generations. And, and he's remembering remembering that promise of destiny and he's complaining about the experience of reality. Uh, 
you know, God had said in chapter 12, I'll make of thee a great nation. He said, thou shalt be a blessing. I know he said, I will bless those who bless you and, and, and curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless you. But he said, I'll make of you a great nation. You will be a blessing. And in you or through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And it's amazing to me how we Pentecostals only get I will bless you out of that promise and almost nothing else. Uh, you know, the Abraham promise means I'm going to be blessed, man. Uh, I'm going to give me a bumper sticker and a t-shirt. It's going to say too blessed to be stressed. And everywhere somebody goes, how are you? Blessed. Uh, how you doing? I'm blessed. You may not be blessed, but I'm blessed. See what I'm driving. See what I'm wearing. Uh, you know, uh, that's all we get out of that. And yet that is so short of the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham and through him to us. Now, Abraham is in his tent several years removed from that promise, and his only heir is his servant, and his wife Sarah is barren. And from the reality of barrenness, a question erupts from his heart. The King James, what will you give me? I know the New Living says, what good are your promises? And that would fit, but I want to focus on that word, what will you give me? What will you, when's the last time you just sat down in a pool of self-pity uh, and you looked toward the heavens and you said, what are you, you know, what, what are you going to give me, God? Uh, uh, why aren't you blessing me, God? Why aren't you doing more for me, God? What are you going to do for me, God? And God's promise to make him a blessing uh, is reduced to God's failure to bless him in his spiritual proclamation. That limited vision leads to self-centeredness. And when people fail to step into thee, you will be a blessing phase of their spiritual life, the inevitable result is a sense of spiritual barrenness and suddenly God isn't doing anything for him and that's why God is trying to get us constantly to look beyond ourselves. Notice verse 5. First thing God did was take him outside of his tent. He said, come on out. He's been sitting in his tent with all this complaining going on. God said, come out of your tent. Come on, come, come out of your tent, if you will. It's nighttime. So he said, now look up at the stars. Just look up at the stars and count them. I'm going to go ahead, count them. There's one. There's a, come on, come on, Abraham, count them if you can. I dare you. Tell me how many stars are up there. Get out of your tent and look up in the sky. Look up at the stars and the expanse of them. And you tell me how many stars that you see there. Count them for me. You see, his tent represented his comfort zone. It represented his life as usual, his normal daily existence, what he he was used to his spiritual routine it was kind of life as he had settled for life had been become accustomed to and listen to me if you never get out of your tent you'll never see beyond the roof and you'll definitely never see the stars and the longer you stay in the tent the smaller your world becomes until you are the total center of your universe and you cannot see God pointing you toward his promise saying I've got much more for you don't limit yourself in the tent of your comfort zone and many of us have been in our tents Way too long. <laughs> You've settled for the limited experience of your comfort zone. All the while God is saying to you, get out of your tent and look at the stars. That's what I have for you. I've got promise for you. I've got plans for you. I intend to use you. There are lives out there that I have designed you specifically to minister to. There are people out there that I've designed you specifically to touch. You have a job to do that nobody else can do. You have people to reach that nobody else can reach. I want to pour my son into someone's life through you. And you're sitting in your tent complaining about a lack of blessing. It's been a long time since some folks have been outside their tent, since they've seen beyond themselves, uh, since they've reached for the stars of God's promise. You see, everybody has a line. Everybody in this room has a line in their life. Uh, I've called it a line in the sand. It's that line between 
what, what, what divides normal from not normal. Okay, there's this line that God has drawn in the sand that separates what is normal from what is not normal in your spiritual life. And we run up to that line over and over again. We have a service. God begins to move. We feel this, this, this calling in our lives, and we begin to run toward our destiny. We begin to run toward that line, and we hit it, and we tow the line, and we come to a screeching halt, and we stand there in fear, and we look at the line because we know this is the dividing line. This is the separating line. This is what separates normal from not normal. And so we look at it. We are at the line, and we go on this side of the line, normal Christian life. On this side of the line, not normal Christian life. On this side of the line, I'm just like everybody else. I fit in with the crowd. I, I'm just like all the other Christians out there. On this side of the line, I'm not like everybody else. I'm not like those other Christians. On, on this side of the line, there is the accepted level of commitment, uh, you know, and, and all of us are right there. and We pat each other on the back and say, hang in there, brother. Jesus is coming. But on this side of the line, it's an exceptional level of commitment. Uh, and I find that there are very few believers who are willing uh, to step over into that area of their experience on this side of the line I'm hanging with the herd I'm staying with my boys on that side of the line I'm soaring with the eagles but I find that I'm out there often by myself and there's no one else that's with me but God and I'm out there alone and I'm saying that I'm scared to death to step over that line and yet every one of us at some point has had that sense of destiny a sense that we were created for something more a call, if you will, that's inside of our heart that tells us that God has designed us for something more. We were meant for something more than, uh, than going through the motion, something more than punching a clock, something more than drawing a paycheck, something more than living for that next retirement or that next new car, or something more than building a, you know, building a good 501, you know, uh, building a good investment portfolio, something more than going to church, something more than going through the motion, something more than worshiping and going home and entering the same old routine. There's something inside of us that screams, that cries, that calls, that hear the voice of God saying, I designed you to do a great thing in the earth. Somebody give him praise. Go ahead. Oh, come on. That's weak. Give him some praise. It's like that line in the sand. We see it. We rush toward our destiny, only to come to this cliff, this chasm, this dividing line, a, a jumping off point. Stretched out in front of us is the ocean of divine promise, but it's a terrifying consideration. That moment when God whispers in your ear and he says, I want to use you to pour my son into someone's life. We're... we're we're facing a moment of decision that separates a life of normality from a leap of destiny. And like Sam Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings, as he and Frodo were, uh, I got one other nerd over there, as he and Frodo were beginning their journey uh, that lay in front of them, and there's a point where Sam Gamgee just stops in his tracks, and he's standing there with this look of fear on his face, and Frodo goes a few steps forward, and he says, turns around and says, what's wrong, Sam? Come on. And Sam says to him, he says, if I take one more step, I will have gone further than I've ever gone before. 
if I take one more step, he's thinking of leaving the comforts of the shire and the comforts of home and the comforts of what he knew and the comforts of five meals a day and the comforts of comforts that he had become accustomed to. And he realized if he took one more step, he would have gone further than he'd ever gone before in his life. And the problem is that we want extraordinary experience and, to, and yet still be considered normal. Do you hear what I said? We want an extraordinary experience and yet everything to be normal. It's that one more step dilemma. If I take one more step, if I make one more commitment, I will have gone further than I've ever gone before and I'll step over into territory that I'm unfamiliar with and I am scared to death. I mean, we want something more. We desire something better, but we want everything else to remain the same. What we want is better, but the same. And it doesn't work that way. So we rush up to that line over and over again, but it scares us to death. And we draw back into our tent. We run back into our comfort zone, into our life of barrenness. And we complain about what God isn't doing for us. <laughs> I, I lived in Hawaii. And I uh, stayed a couple of months on Maui, up country Pukalani there, and lived there uh, above Kahului. And, and uh, there was a place we loved to go called Twin Falls. And it was on the road to Hana. And as you went that way, there's a spot where you parked and you hiked back into the mountain or into, the, into that little valley area. And there's a place there called Twin Falls where two waterfalls come together and they form a really deep, cold, freshwater pool. And, uh, and so the locals knew where it is and some of the tourists have found it and you would, you would just scale up the cliffs and, you know, you'd jump into that deep pool. And, uh, you know, I'm from Mississippi and we don't have anything like that. And uh, so... Like, hey, bro, you going to do this? Oh, shoot, yeah, man, no problem. And so I, I'm up the cliff like, you know, like I've always climbed cliffs, and I get to the top. And, and I don't know how high it is, but it looks like 150,000 feet. And uh, I'm, I'm standing there on the edge, and, uh, and I'm looking down at it, and I'm like, well, at first it's like this. I'm going to jump off this thing. <sighs> you just stand there, and fear kind of grips you, and you paralyze you, and you start to wobble. And, uh, and you just look there, and you go, oh, no, wait a minute. And I go back, and I sit down. And and there's this 13-year-old boy, he crawls up the cliffs, and he looks at me like a chicken, and he goes, come on, brah, and off he goes. <laughs> I mean, I'm red-blooded Mississippi boy, ain't no 13-year-old Hawaiian kid going to show me up. So I get up, and I say, all right, here we go. And I run to the cliff, and it's like, the brakes, man, it's like this automatic braking system, and you can't get beyond. You can't make that leap, and you, you stare there looking down, and it's like, that's a mile away. I don't know if he lived. I don't know if the kid lived. So, so you go back and you sit down and you just kind of sit there and, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I can't crawl back down the cliffs. I mean, that is the ultimate turning my man card thing. I can't do that. And, uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm sitting here till the sun goes down and maybe I can sneak down another way. And, and then here comes this little girl. She can't be more than nine or ten. And, and she comes up the cliffs and she looks at me like, you chicken. And then she goes, come on, Brian, off she goes. I am not letting a 10-year-old girl show me up at no point in my life. And so I, I just hoped she was clear. And at some point, I just ran. And when I got to the screeching halt part, you close your eyes and you leap. And about halfway down, you open your eyes and say, what have I done? And yet you've been running to that line. You've been looking over that cliff spiritually all of your life. And you've been going back and sitting down. And God has been bringing pilgrims by you over and over again. 
You watch the joy in their face as they launch themselves into the unknown. And you sit back paralyzed in fear. If I take one more step, if I take that leap, if I cross that line, if I step over there, I will leave the confines of my comfort zone and I'll abandon everything I know and I become accustomed to and I will step over into an area of the unknown, a mysterious, I'm going to tell you something, there ain't nothing like leaping off a 40-foot cliff into water that's deep and dark and, and cold when you hit it other than the impact. That's very uncomfortable. Uh, but the, real, the realization is that some point, my friend, at some point, you have got to make the leap. At some point, you've got to take the jump. At some point, you've got to cross the line. You've got to get there. Listen, sometimes the greatest discoveries of faith are made in fear. Think of Peter. He's sitting in the boat. Storms are washed around him. They believe the boat's sinking. Here comes this ghost on the water, later identified as Jesus. And he says, if that's you, call me out of the boat. And he says, well, come on, Peter. And Peter steps out of the boat. And we all give him accolades for his bravery. Bravery got nothing to do with it. I want you to understand the boat was going down and Jesus was standing up. And all he knew was, I'd rather be standing up with Jesus than going down with this bunch of chickens. And he got out of the boat. There's some times where you got to let your fear empower your faith. And you got to launch out into the deep. And you got to take a leap. And you got to say, use me, God. <laughs> Sad reality is that what's holding you back in your spiritual life is that you've come to that line or to the edge of that cliff and you won't cross it, you won't take that leap. Because you know that you have to be different to make a difference. You hear what I said? You know you have to be different to make a difference. The question is how badly do you want to make a difference? We blame it on God. I haven't been led. I don't feel called. Jesus said, look and see. The harvest is white. Look and count. The labors are few. Uh, the need is the call. God's waiting on you to say, here am I, send me. Send me to my neighbor. Send me to my best friend. Send me to my coworker. Send me to my family member. Send me. As I walked through the airport there in Houston yesterday, I was just overwhelmed by the mass of people that were moving back and forth that I was in the middle of. The sheer number of people began to burden my heart, and I thought, how many of them even know Jesus? I saw every nationality, every size, every shape, and I, I started to weep right there as I walked, and I just thought, God, I can't reach them. I can't reach them all. He said, I didn't design you to reach them all. I didn't design you to reach them all, and he whispered something that I was sharing with you today. God designed you to reach them. He designed you to pour his, his son's life out of you into them. You'll affect people only the proportion that you're willing to make a personal sacrifice yourself. Do you hear me? You'll affect people only to the proportion that you're willing to make a personal sacrifice yourself. It is time we realize that God has destined us to live for something bigger than ourselves. It's time to get out of the tent of self-centered living and cross the line into extraordinary spiritual life and jump off the cliff of spiritual adventure and live for the glory of God. That's what it's time for. It's time for you to live for the glory of God. Somebody give me praise. Do that now. Come on, give me praise. I love old war movies, and, and one of my favorites is the 1955 Disney version of the Alamo with Fess Parker. Some of you don't even know who Fess Parker is. 
But it is the scene where Colonel William Travis drew his sword as they're preparing to leave the Alamo because they've just learned that reinforcements were coming and they'd already been fighting for 10 days and they, were, uh, and they just realized to stay here is certain death. And, and Colonel William Travis takes his sword and he draws it and he basically gives them the offer. He said, you can leave this fort uh, in honor. Nobody's going to think ill of you or you can choose to stay with me. And so he drew that line. He said, if you're going to stay with me, you've got to step over that line. But I want you to understand, no help is coming. Uh, and, and we're not going to last very long. And if you step across that line, it is certain death and in the movie basically everyone uh, Fess Parker was the uh, Daniel Davy Crockett I guess stepped across the line first and then Jim Bridger was in his bed he had him carry him across until every individual stepped on the other side of that line uh, and yet each man knew that stepping across the line was a choice to lay down his life to buy time for an army to be raised for the cause of Texas and that's what Christ's line in the sand represents a willingness to lay down your life totally and completely for him and the cause of his gospel. It's not a popular theme in modern preaching because it's not a popular theme in modern Christians. I mean, we may lay down a questionable habit. Uh, we may lay down a hobbit, uh, you know, a hobby temporarily. Uh, uh, hobbit, I said hobbit, like I got that in my mind. Uh, well, a hobby, you know, okay, God, you want me to give up golf? I'll give it up for like 35 days. Uh, you don't want me to wash my show? I'll give up my show for two months, Lord. Uh, you want me to fast? Okay, I'll fast tea. I'll fast tea, Lord. Uh, uh, you know, I'll fast that for six months. I'm really doing something for God. I'll lay it down temporarily. We may lay down uh, a few hours of our schedule or a few weeks or even months, uh, but our entire life, uh, our 24-7 existence, lay it down? No way. That's not in our vocabulary. And yet Jesus says, uh, if any person wants to come after me, uh, let him personally deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, grab that cross and follow me? What do you think he meant when he said, come on, follow me, guys, grab your cross. Follow me to Walmart? Uh, you know, well, follow me to Disney World? Uh, or the popular thing, follow me to health, wealth, prosperity, and happiness? No way. Follow me up that hill. And what's at the top of the hill? Crucifixion. Death. That's what's at the top of the hill. So that you can, with Paul, stand and declare, I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. And yet that's not all. He says, follow me up that hill every day. Not just one time at a revival service. Not just one time during an altar call. But every day, take up your cross and follow Jesus up the hill and die. Paul said I die daily. Now the New Living Translation and the NIV leave something to be desired in their translation. They use I face death. But the Greek text reads daily I die. The Amplified captures it more completely when it says I die daily and in parentheses it says I face death and I die to self. And that's what we're talking about. Not so much facing death as it is dying to yourself on a daily basis. You want something different in your spiritual life? If you want something you've never had, you've got to be willing to do something you've never done before. Let me give you three things real quick and we'll close. If you really want to make a difference, there are three new levels we have to come to. First of all, we've got to come to a new level of communication. We are answering questions no one's asking. And it's not about relevance. I hate that word. Relevance. It's about revelation. It's not about relevance, it's about revelation. You know, it's, we're, we're kind of like the old man that got him a new watch. He showed it off, he said, got him a new watch. Kind of hard to hear too. And the guy said, oh, really, what kind is it? He said, it was about 3 o'clock, why? You know, it's kind of like the aborigine, you didn't get that. It's like the aborigine. 
I was making a living as a comedian, I'd starve to death. <laughs> it's kind of like the aborigine and the tourist, and they're looking at this animal, this creature that's bouncing around on two feet. It looks like a rabbit, but it's not a rabbit. It's got a pouch, got babies in it. And the tourist says, what is that? The aborigine says kangaroo, which I've been told, I haven't verified by research, but what I've been told is aborigine for I don't know. Uh, and so for years we've been looking at this creature and we said that is an I don't know typical Pentecostal response uh, uh, we say we're speaking things and we don't even know what we're speaking them the question is uh, what is your life communicating I could care less what comes out of your mouth I want to know what is the visual message that your life is communicating what is your life saying what, uh, what are people reading from you on a day-to-day basis that's what's important Jesus said I'm the light of the world if you've seen me you've seen the father he said thus I am the visible expression of the visible God Uh, I came down to show you the father so he went around as the light of the world later he would look at his disciples and through his disciples speak to us and say you are the light of the world in other words I'm leaving and you are to become the visible expression of the invisible God and I am going to send you as lights out in a dark place and you are going to show forth the marvelous works of the redeeming power of the living God by the message of your life. (laughs) Hallelujah. Uh, You know, what we learn learn comes through the eyes. We're visual people. Matter of fact, hold your hands up just like this. Hold your hands up like this. Put it right here in your chin. Right here on your chin. I said your chin. You see, your, your, you know, your, your children get it from you, don't they? Uh, nobody listens. Nobody listens. It's what we see through our eyes. And so you talk all this Jesus, and yet they don't see Jesus in your life. <laughs> and in this new era of inclusivism, we have laid down the exclusive claims of Christ. And out of our desire not to offend, we have forgotten the offense of the cross. And we are in danger of slipping into a powerless, deadly universalism that will lead no one to Jesus. And what we need is a recommitment to communicating Christ as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And our words will not make it convincing. It will be what they see in our lives every day by the accuracy of our lives secondly we got to go to a new level of caring we got to jettison the stewardess mentality you know you know what I'm talking about you've been on a plane uh, they're so nice they're so happy welcome to our plane uh, you need a pillow you need a blanket donuts no no donuts <laughs> I wish that'd be a stewardess uh, peanuts they don't do that anymore pretzels uh, drink you want coffee well you almost think they care but lose your baggage at baggage claim and ask them to help you and they don't know who you are because it doesn't fit in their job description we've got to come to a new level of caring there's something that's got to move us from the inside when we see an individual what is the first reaction you have when you see somebody who may look like they belong to a gang or may look like they're a homeless individual or may look like they're of a different persuasion than you or may be a different color or dress a different way. What is it that moves on the inside of you? It tells you whether or not you really care, you really love. There's got to be a point where we really care about the individuals that are around us, where we're moved with compassion. But I will care for people within the framework of my job description, in the confines of my comfort zone. But don't ask me to to, to sacrifice 
sacrifice to do any of that. Don't ask me to go out of my way. And yet, Christ is calling us to the greater love level. You hear that? Christ is calling you to the greater love level. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Well, I do that for my friends, some of them. I'll take a bullet for my wife. My brother-in-law, I don't know. And yet he says, I've called you friends. He's speaking to his disciples, but again, to him, he was speaking to all of us. But God committed his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You haven't truly loved until you reach that greater love level. I don't have to know you to love you. I don't have to know you to be moved by your circumstance and situation. I don't have to know you to care deeply for your soul. We have a situation. I'm hurrying. We have, can I have five, five ten minutes? Got a situation. Uh, I went to the, the ICU there, one of the hospitals in Reading, to visit someone. As I walked in the in the back, uh, one of the girls from my church is sitting at this desk, and she's just working away. And, and I said, "Hey," and talked to her for just a minute. And, and then uh, the rare, very next desk over, which is right next to that one, a gap for passing through, there's another girl from my church. And so I walk down there, and I say, hey, and she gets up and comes hug me. And, and then I say, I'm here to see so-and-so. So she takes me into the, in the room there in ICU. We spend a little while, and, and, uh, and then as we come out, she says, you know, there's a girl here that looks just like someone that goes to our church. I said, really? She said, yeah. I said, well, let's go talk to her. So I walk up to the girl that looks like someone who goes to our church. And it's someone who goes to our church. And I said, I don't know if you two have met, uh, but she goes to our church. And the other girl looks at me and says, shut up. You know, my church isn't that big, man. But here they are. The big, this, and this girl's been here all her life. And this one's been going to our church for about two and a half years. Uh, and this one sits in this section of the church. And this one sits in this section of the church. Uh, and she said, you know, I said to her the other day, you look like somebody who goes to my church. And she said, yeah. And I said to her, really? That's cool. Uh, and the reality is uh, they go to the same church uh, and they have never got across the aisle uh, to talk to someone. And we have one of those moments like you do where we say, get out from where you are and put your arms around someone to love someone and I found that too often we stay in our little world in our comfort zone we don't even wander across the aisle of the church much less across the street or down the road or to another country and it's because we really don't care here's the last one you got to go to a new level of commitment listen man listen when you pick up that cross you take that leap when you pick up your cross and follow Jesus up that hill when you die to yourself suddenly you're introduced to a new level of commitment totally new I am old school I am cut from old cloth I hate modern basketball I hate what they're making out of football I was one of those ball players that enjoyed that moment where your head exploded and you saw white I didn't I didn't know then that it was a concussion and, you know, I thought concussions were you were knocked out cold. That happened only once. I didn't know that this thing where you exploded and you saw little birds and you just went, that's cool. That's 
I'm old school. Sacrifice, commitment, pay the price, do whatever it takes, stay the course, suck it up, put on your big boy pants, put on your big girl pants, fight the fight, don't quit, be consistent, be ferocious, understand you're never out of the fight. All of these should be words and phrases that describe our commitment to Christ and the gospel and the drive that we have. But, we're the, but I don't believe in participation trophies and, and I don't believe in safe zones. I, I understand that we come in here this, this, and I know often we describe our churches as places to be healed and hospitals and all that. But man, it's a boot camp also. You got to understand there's a war going on out there and there are people who are being taken captive and there are people who are being wounded and there are people who are being killed by the enemy. And God has brought you in here to fit you for the battle. My oldest son is a physical therapist Therapist, uh, and he's gone to Fort Benning now to join the National Guard, and he's uh, in Ibolic right now. And he went, he went to boot camp, uh, weighing 250 pounds. He's six foot four, weighs 250 pounds. He came home after boot camp, weighing 212 pounds. He's a different young man, uh, and now he'll throw on a rucksack and he'll do an eight mile run with the rest of his guys. And he's proud of his accomplishments. And he talks about how they're training him to fight and and, and where their gunners set. And he's he's learning command uh, so that when he goes into, if he ever has to go into battle, and God forbid, I hope he never has to, but if he ever has to go to battle, he's going to be ready for it. He's going to leave there and go to ranger school and they're going to put him through that. He's going to come back a different man because there's a whole different world when you step in Fort Benning, Georgia and you go to and you go to boot camp and you got a drill sergeant yelling in your face and then you want to come to church and have us kind of rub you just a little bit and pat you just a little bit and praise you just a little bit and just bandage you just a little bit and the fact of the matter is as pastors we don't have time to be gentle because because there's an enemy out there and he is destroying lives and if you're born again you are meant to be an armor uh, in the army of the Lord and a soldier of the cross and it's time to stand up and be a man or a woman of God <laughs> we're gonna make a difference there's a new level of commitment we have to move to commitment to prayer commitment to Christ commitment to faithfulness a level of intentionality we've yet to reach. Most of us live our life by accident. Most believers are committed to themselves. I can say that because I'm leaving this afternoon. That's why we don't want to cross that line. Because we know, it, we know it'll cost us something. And there's a level some of you are stalled at because you know it'll cost you. You ladies know what I'm talking about. You go and you find that dress. Just what you've been looking for. You just sweep it off the hanger and take it to the dress room. You put it on and, man, it looks fine. You take it off. You go back out. You start to head toward the cashier. You flip over and you look at the price tag. And just before you did that, you said, I love this dress. You flip it over. You look at the price tag. I don't love this dress this much. Some husbands are saying, I wish my wife did that. My wife is, should I call him now or just tell him later? <laughs> the desire hasn't changed. The price is just too high. And that's where we are often spiritually. We come to church and we really, really want to make a difference. And we know, we know God has designed us to do that. But our destiny is to have him pour in the life of his son into others through us. And we run up to that line. And we look at it and we say the price is too high.
we go back to our tent and we sit in our comfort zone and we complain about what God isn't doing for us. And we wonder why we're living a life of spiritual barrenness. How bad do you really want to make a difference in someone else's life? What will define your spiritual legacy? Let's stand. Just bow your head and close your eyes. Listen to the Holy Spirit. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.